We Need to Talk About Cosby is a four-part documentary series that tries to reckon with the beloved comedian who was accused of drugging and raping multiple women. I talked to the series director, W. Kamau Bell. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. W. Kamau Bell has an eclectic career as a stand-up comic and the creator of CNN's United Shades of America. He's hosted multiple podcasts and written books, but his latest project may be his most ambitious and most contentious. In the series, We Need to Talk About Cosby, Kamau is trying to make space for the full complexity of Bill Cosby. There are now more than 60 women who have gone on record accusing Cosby of sexual harassment, assault, and rape. In 2018, he was convicted of aggravated assault and sent to prison. But then last summer, he was released in a surprise court reversal over a legal technicality. For many, the heinous accusations eclipse all his previous work. For other Cosby fans, it's not so easy to erase their memories of all the good he brought into their lives. If you grew up African-American in the 1970s and 80s, Cosby stood out as a pioneer across multiple fields of entertainment. His series, The Cosby Show, made him an esteemed figure to almost everyone, regardless of race. In his narration, Kamau describes the pain of confronting that duality. Honestly, there were times when I was making this that I wanted to quit. I wanted to hold on to my memories of Bill Cosby before I knew about Bill Cosby. And I guess I can, as long as I admit, as long as we all admit, that there's just a Bill Cosby we didn't know. In the series, Kamau talks to a wide range of people with varying takes. They include some of Cosby's accusers and his one-time admirers who now grapple with the legacy. The series premiered in late January, and Kamau's social media posts lit up with backlash from Cosby fans who still defend him. Kamau has given several interviews in recent weeks, and I'll link to a few in our show notes. I tried to ask him questions that I hadn't heard him answer before. I started by taking a step back to reflect on how his career has led up to this project. His first steady job in television was hosting the FX talk show Totally Biased. His current CNN show, United Shades of America, is now entering its seventh season. In each episode, he explores a topic connected to race. He's demonstrated a knack for holding hard conversations, even if that means sitting down with members of the KKK. I asked him, out of all these projects, what does he take the most pride in? I mean, I feel like overall, even though a lot of the pieces are separate, I think there is a congruent through line through the things that I'm doing. And I think the through line gets gets sharper and more and more focused as we go through. So, you know, I look at that, my first TV show, Totally Biased, and it's like looking at baby pictures. And I can't even look at some of the clips. I wouldn't pull them up. But that guy was trying. <laughs> that guy was really, he was really going for it. And the things that he was trying there, I think I got better at through the years. So, you know, I, so yeah, I think that like, I constantly end up putting myself in positions where it's like, how did I get here? And then sort of like putting my head down and figuring out something, you know, doesn't always work out, 
you know, totally biased. It didn't, it was, I thought it was going to be like a 20 year showbiz job and it lasted a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I really thought when it was over that my career was over, but I just sort of constantly sort of follow my curiosity and accept invitations to things that I'm like, huh, it's weird that they, CNN wants to have a meeting with me. That's, I don't know that, why they would want to do that. So, you know, I think that like there's specific episodes of United Shades that I'm super proud of. We did an episode about what do we even do with white supremacy that my mom is in and that's not the reason I'm proud of it but I do feel like that episode was like the result of like all the years of United Shades I'd done and going like this is what I've been trying to say for a long time uh we did an episode about defund the police at the premiere of last season I felt like was like in the midst of everybody sort of not knowing what to talk about we were like okay I was like here it is here it is um and I'm super proud of the f times that the work has actually helped people in the real world. Like, I think that's the thing that is, I've seen happen. And I'm always, that's where I'm at now. Like, how do I do more of that? You know, I, my first thing I directed was a documentary about Chris Rock that I just sort of got invited to direct and had never directed before. And, and it's one of the few things that I can watch and be like, that's good. So, you know, I really am proud of it. And I'm not in it, you know, but I just, I felt like it was like the first time I did something that I was like, I actually feel like I did something I hadn't seen before. And then also, and that sort of was the first inroads to this Cosby doc. And again, when I got that, it was like to go from one one hour doc to a four episode series about one about Chris Rock. That's just basically like, isn't he great to this Bill Cosby thing that is way more complicated. Many times I was like, why did they let me do this? Like, well, how did I end up here? But I'm proud of the fact that people seem to have many people generally have seemed to receive it the way that it was intended, like. How can we have a more complicated, nuanced conversation about Bill Cosby and also showbiz and rape culture overall? Well, you describe yourself as someone who's willing to have hard conversations, wants to plunge in and have hard conversations, which in a way is different from the way a lot of stand-up comedians uh, perform. A lot of stand-up comedy is a, a comedian filtering the world, using the stage to to maybe start conversations, but not necessarily be having those conversations themselves. It's a one-sided conversation when you're watching uh, a lot of uh, stand-up comedy. Um, and I wonder, you know, if there was like a point in your career when you realized that the, the, the dialogues were, you know, what interested you. I mean, I think I always felt like stand-up comedy it was a two-way conversation. It's just the audience's job was to laugh when they understood what I was saying. Like, it did feel like it was like, it's, you know, it's not like if it was just monologues with no audience involvement. But I always felt like stand-up comedy is the only art form that I'm aware of where it requires the audience res audience's response. So, like, it is sort of like, what do you think about that? Ha, 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 ha. What do you think about that? Oh, what do you think about that? Yay, we agree. Like, there is, like, this thing that's happening. And I also became, I really had fun in stand-up comedy, really noticing when only one part of the audience would laugh or when one person would laugh real hard. And then you would, then I would engage with that person to go, I'm glad you're here. Nobody else gets it like we do, which makes the rest of the audience feel like, oh, I thought we were the cool audience, you know, like, you know, so, uh, you know, I think I always sort of saw it as like a back and forth, um, and I, I don't think I, I think I did it for the back and forth and for the sharing. I, I think I, I didn't do it for the being the center of attention. That was not my thing. But I really did it for like I always felt like if there was a different way to get these jokes to people, I would do that. I love performing, but it was just like that's just the most immediate way to do it is to like say it in front of people. And then I think a lot of stand-up comedy is really the way I did it was like there was a lot of improv and sort of like, oh, tonight we're doing this. And oh, this joke is going a different direction. And so I really enjoyed that was also about responding to the audience 
and I had many bits that I built that were like, I remember the night that, that, that somebody said that, and then I did this, and then, you know, so it always felt like it was, we were in conversation together. But really, to sort of answer your question more directly is when I, when we, the first episode of Totally Biased, uh, Chris Rock, who was the executive producer, said, you have to go out and do Man on the Street. Basically, nobody knows who you are, so you have to go mix it up with the people. And at that time, one of the big issues in New York where we filmed the show uh, was stop and frisk. And so Chris Rock is like, you're going to go up to Harlem. You're going to do man on the street with people and ask them about, if, about stop and frisk, if they have been stopped and frisk, what their thoughts about it are. And I'd never done any man on the street stuff before and really didn't like it generally because I didn't like the sort of the like the comedian has all the answers. and They make fun of the person for not having the answers, uh, which was my which is what I as I, how I saw it to be at that point. And I just sort of was, I was really nervous about it. And I just went up there. I was like, oh, I don't know how to be funny like this. I don't want to make fun of people. It's also stop and frisk. I don't want anybody to think I'm making fun of stop and frisk as a black man who's not even from New York. But out of that, that was the thing that got most talked about was the segment where I talked to people. And I sort of over time realized, oh, I can just talk to people and be funny, but I don't have to make fun of them. I mean, I can if the, if the moment calls for it. But I don't have to make fun of them directly. And then when I got to, and so the Man on the Street pieces were like the thing that I think I did the best in the show. That people were like, "That's his. That's the thing he does best. He should only do that." <laughs> the, the the monologues, he's okay in, but that's his thing. So I think that's what uh, CNN saw when they brought me in to do United Shades was like, this comedian's actually good at talking to people and is politically aware enough that he's not going to just make jokes about the headlines. He actually knows what's going on. And so then, but with United Shades, the same thing happened. Like the, I thought. Oh, they want a comedy. They want a comedian out in the field making jokes with people, and it took me a while. And also, through different producers to sort of clear them out to go. No, I just talk to people, and I'm funny sometimes because I know how to be funny, and funny makes conversation happen. But I don't have to be doing jokes every few minutes. The way that, and I don't think that's a wrong way to do it. It's not how I do it. So I'd say when I first heard the title, "We Need to Talk About Cosby," my first reaction was like, "Do we? Like, you know, you know, haven't we?" kind of sorted that one out uh, uh, already. And um, and I feel differently about it, having watched the, the four episodes. But I, but I wonder what was driving you when you started this project? What, what, why did you feel like we needed to talk about Cosby? I mean, the funny thing is the title was probably the last thing to be done with this series. I think we went through a lot of different versions of titles. Uh, there's a lot of Google Docs out there. So I never, and I didn't come up with the title. So, but so, But when I heard it, and I sort of sort of tossed around my head. I was like, I like the fact that I knew that immediately some people were going to have the Dewey, which is fine because it means you're engaging with it. But I knew that. But I was also happy to see that when we put out the trailer, some people were like, finally, we need finally we're going to have this conversation, which let me know that, like, OK, if you feel like finally we're ready to have this conversation, then I think this is the project for you, because that sounds like you want to you have been wrestling with it on your own. So for me, I think the Cosby the whole thing was just something that me, I had been wrestling with and other black people wrestled with. And, and anybody who grew up in America or lived in America during the height of the Cosby show had been had been wrestling with. So I think I, before I ever thought I could direct a series about it, there was just this like, how do I talk about Bill Cosby as one of the primary stand-up comedy influences in my life, one of the primary black, one of the primary black entertainment influences in my life, one of the primary influences of you're going to be an entertainer, do good in the world too, and reckon with the fact that, you know, and it didn't take to 60 for me to do this, but reckon with the fact that women are keep coming out saying that he sexually assaulted or, or, or raped them. How do I, as a person, if I sit down in an interview with somebody from the press and they go, what are your fa- who are your favorite comedians when you were growing up? How do I do that? 
And then how do I reckon with the fact that some people out in the world are so want to defend him that they are denying what I think is the clear truth of these women who have come forward? How do I reckon with that? And also, I don't even know that much about these women. I just sort of know I support them in a sort of like it just in an overall like 60 women coming forward is too many for there not to be some truth there. But I hadn't really done all the I hadn't really looked into it a lot. So this documentary was an opportunity for me to like really educate myself about all of it. Cosby's career, the Cosby offstage we didn't know and the crimes and the survivors. You say in the piece that, uh, that there was a lot of times when you wanted to uh, quit this project. It was just, it felt too hard. And I've been listening to your interviews in the last two weeks since uh, since the show uh, debuted. And I hear trepidation uh, in your voice about how the show is going to be received, about communities that are that you know could uh, really deliver a backlash to you or are going to misinterpret it or any number of things. And... Um, I wonder now that the show's been out for uh, a couple weeks and now people are actually seeing it, right? I mean, some of those interviews I was hearing you give was when people just had seen a trailer and hadn't really seen the, the full show. But how are you feeling about it right now? I mean, you know, I think that I'm, you know, like, like always, I'm able to hold multiple truths in my head. So I am super excited and feel, not excited, but feel a sense of like fulfillment over the fact that there are people who really feel like there's something achieved in this doc that they haven't seen before and that the way we're talking about survivors and sexual assault and rape and rape culture they haven't seen in this way obviously there's surviving r kelly there's on the record there's other docs that address this there's uh alan versus uh alan versus Farrell. so i'm not saying i've never it's never done but just sort of reckoning with the whole career in multiple parts of this story uh so i would say that like that makes me feel good because I think we knew we were I knew I was out on a limb with this because it's like you either make the doc that is just about the career or the doc that is just about the assaults generally so I'm happy to see that people are dealing with it but I'm also like experiencing I am every night just yesterday I like accidentally went on Instagram like which I've been trying to like not do and just Instagram was like look at this bad news (laughs) look at look at this attack and you're like oh I, I you know and that and I'm a human so the good news affects me and the bad news affects me so I've I still feel like I'm in the middle of it. And I'm also aware that, like, for the rest of my life, I will. there will be a time where I might walk into a room and somebody's going to see me and associate me with this doc and not be happy to see me. And that's probably for the rest of my life. And I can't be naive to that. In this, and, you know, I think though I talked to my best friend Jason about it. I was like, well, at least I'm not the guy who talked to the Klan anymore because that was what I had for a long time. But now I'm aware that this is way bigger. And so I can't ever sort of, like relax into the like ah it's out it's over and does that feel different than anything you've done before you've maybe waded into controversial territories before but is 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 this at a different level yeah it's a different i feel like like for example i've referenced the kkk episode of united shades that felt like a sort of that felt like super uh provocative at the time and now it feels like the kids table at thanksgiving like it just feels like you know, even if I was to do that again, I would do it differently, but I wouldn't do it again. But this, it feels like there was lots of things in my career, like even things on United Shades where like in, in the first, in the second season, I talked to a family whose son had been killed at basically like their family, like memorial in their house. And he had been, and they had just come from the wake and on the Pine Ridge reservation, their son had been killed by gang violence. And like, somebody was like, 
they want to talk to you. And so I walked into this family who was in the middle of mourning and had to sit down as a guy whose TV show had been on for a year. And they had, I don't think anybody knew who I was and just sort of like connected with them. So for me, it's like a lot of United Shades has taught me how to like go into spaces where I'm not invited or people don't expect me to be there and figure out how to connect with people and get them to trust me, which is a lot of the talk with the survivors was like that. So yeah, I feel like everything I did before, little did I know was training me up for this. I want to ask you more about interviewing the survivors uh, because there's obviously you know, deep layers of trauma there. These you're not in. These women are not giving their first interview uh, to you. They've talked about it uh, before, but that doesn't make it any easier uh, to talk about. There's, there's even one woman, Victoria Valentino, who describes it. Uh, Bill Cosby raping her just a few weeks after her son had drowned. It's like multiple yes. layers of uh, of trauma uh, there. So um, clearly you've had some experience before talking to people in, in difficult situations. Um, but, but what did you do to, you know, to prepare for these interviews and to, you know, try to give the the women the care that they needed to tell their stories? I mean, I would say this is a lot of this is on the team, you know, the showrunner Katie King, uh, producer Kelly Rafferty and uh, co-EP Geraldine Porras, like did a lot of the outreach initially. Uh, Geraldine did a lot of the like, like even because we had to shut down during COVID and she stayed in touch with the with the, many of the survivors because they just wanted to know what was going on, even though it was like, you know, it's that unpaid labor that women often find themselves doing where they just sort of was like, well, I need to talk to Geraldine. So they called her, you know, it's like it, whether or not the clock is running or not. So and Geraldine d- did that. So all that initial outreach, I, I wrote the letters a lot of times, but a lot of the initial outreach on the phone was with, with Katie, Geraldine, and, and Kelly. And I would say that by the time that they either, so first of all, they have to, and you've heard me say this in interviews before, like they had to, first of all, do you want to talk about Cosby again? A lot of them know. Do you want to talk about uh, Cosby again? If yes, is it okay that it's a doc that will also talk about his accomplishments in his career? A lot of them know. Okay, if yes... Do you want to do it with comedian W. Kamau Bell, who's directing this thing? And ultimately, I think if you got to that last part, many of them who came were like, oh, he's doing it? Kind of like, oh, I like his work. Like, they felt like, I think he could pull this off, uh, and I wanted, I would like to talk to him anyway. So a lot of the first few minutes of those conversations were about United Shades or about, like, questions they had about whatever. And I've learned through United Shades, you don't start on the question you came to get answered. You start on, like, how you doing? Do you need water? Can we get you a coffee? Uh, thank you for doing this. Why did you do this? What do you need? You know, sort of like really sort of warming people up. And I think, you know, I think we oftentimes, and it's understandable because it's trauma, but we think these these survivors, specifically women, stay in the delicate place they were when it happened. Or, and or they're, if they talk about it again, they're going to go to that delicate place again. And I think the women who showed up for the most part are like, oh, no, I'm here to talk about it. You know, like, I have decided to do this. I'm here to do it, which is why in the doc, I think it's great that they often come off as funny or sarcastic or angry in ways that you think that you've sort of seen them on the news get reduced to the moments of tears. And I wasn't trying not to do that, but I was just meeting them where they were, which meant you get these really funny moments that I don't think you see in these kind of docs usually, which I think is where the comedian, specifically me, helps bring that out of them or helps set them up so they can do it. I just become like the Magic Johnson to their Kareem. (laughs) One of the women interviewed is Eden Turrell. She had a small role on The Cosby Show and describes how Cosby repeatedly beckoned her to a dressing room, 
pressuring her for physical interactions that made her deeply uncomfortable. I don't believe that's the first time that happened. I don't believe that the people on that set didn't know what was happening. And I will say that right here. And please, please do not edit this. A lot of people knew. Because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. I wonder in the, in the making of the show if you felt you know, interested in trying to investigate more about who knew or, or what the what the culture was there that that supported it. I mean, you know, we asked, as I've said, and I'm sure you heard me say this before, we asked a lot of people, more people said no than said yes. We asked people who are high up on the food chain of 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 the projects he's worked on. So we got some maybes that turned into no's. Also, again, I don't know how much the pandemic, you can't take that out of this, that like when we started this, there was before 2020. And then it was like suddenly like, you know, we're asking people to come to sets when there's no vaccine, you know, and, you know, we shut down for a while. So I can't really we had some pretty pro promising maybes from people who I was like, oh, if we get this person, we really have something. But then they turned into they turned into no's. And uh, so, I, you know, how much of that is the pandemic? How much of that is realizing like, oh, I don't know. And then and then also. He was still in prison. Once he gets out of prison, I was like, well, those no's are going to stay no's now. I was very aware. So I think there was just a lot of moving parts. You know, I always was aware I was not making true crime and didn't want anybody to think I was making true crime. I've listened to those podcasts where the host is trying to solve the case. Often the host does not solve the case, and that's not my job. I don't. I, my job, and I was always like, how do we frame this as a conversation about all of this, not like I'm here to solve the case of who did this. I just That was never my interest. Uh, to do that. My interest was like, how do my interest is always in good conversations, productive conversations, sometimes difficult conversations, but also entertaining conversations. So uh, if as much as they can be in these in these formats. So I was not it was never about like, oh, I'm going to go put on my sleuth hat and go to the scene and try to like, knock on doors. It was never that and it was never pitched as that. And I think that people who want that want a different thing and somebody and there have been like there's been other pro there's been other Cosby projects chasing Cosby uh there's been you know so there's other Cosby projects that may be more like that but that's not exactly what this was I've heard you talk about the people who said no to to doing to being interviewed and and I feel like you have a kind of generous spirit to them there's lots of different reasons why someone uh, would uh, say no and it makes me think about a pressure that I see in the culture today for you know people to take a, a stand. You know, what, what something happens in the news, and you know, our social media feeds you know blow up with uh, with with people making a stand, and and people who aren't in in those same social circles almost look conspicuous by their silence, and kind of creates this pressure. Well, why are you being silent about this? And sometimes I think it's people just need their time and space to, mm -hmm. you know, to work through something to, you know, get a better understanding of, uh, um, you know, uh, of, a, of a subject. And I mean, I wonder if, if you recognize what I'm talking about, this, this kind of pressure in the mm -hmm. culture to take it. No, take I feel, I mean, I feel it personally because of who I, the space I take up in, in the, in the media, like, you know, people expect me to have opinions about a lot of things. And like, I get text messages from people like, what do you think about this? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, and sometimes it's like, it's Sunday. I'm with my kids at the park. I, you know, I don't, I can't, I can't be on all, you know, and I feel bad sometimes like, oh, I probably should know what that is, but you know, there's a real pressure. I mean, I think it's, 
there's also a pressure to think that the thing you weighed in with was your complete, you know, you tweeted was the, is your complete thoughts on the thing when it's like, I, I only ha- I'm just sort of tweeting reactions. So like, I, you know, I think about recently with this, uh, with Eminem kneeling at the Super Bowl, I sent out a tweet and, uh, you know, every now and again, a tweet catches fire. And I was like, oh, I was a little bit like, oh man, I don't want people to think that's the thing I think. I just was like having fun engaging with this image. Uh, and you know, and you sort of, the idea of being, and I've sort of like really started to monitor, like, I admire the people who sort of like managed to be in the media space and have, and have somehow released themselves from the obligation of having to always do instant response and yet still stay relevant. Cause that's the hard part. <laughs> like, how do you still stay relevant? If you're also like, I'm not going to tweet un- un- unless I have, so- unless I have a specific thing to say. And yet, and you can still stay relevant, or I'm not going to social media. And so I think that, like, I, I think we have, there's some people who make a living off of that boom, boom, boom tweet. And I understand that. But we don't all do that, and we, don't, we all shouldn't do that, because it is not a space that is conducive to nuance and conversation. And I've sort of understood, I have to stop acting like it is. So, like, with a lot of the Cosby stuff, there are people who, who have, why didn't you blah, 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 blah. And it's like, part of me wants to go, all right, here we go. But it's like I I'm not going to be able to do this in a way that is that is it's going to take me a long time and the next person isn't going to look at this one. They're going to ask me the same question again. So it's like it just becomes it becomes too much like you're caught up in a video game while at the same time it's like there are times when I'm like really do want to help a specific thing and want to use my platform to try to spread the word and it's and it's but it's a it's a it's not an easy negotiation. In the last moments of the final episode Kamau evokes the prevalence of rape culture by constructing a montage of the comedians and journalists that he's interviewed. He asks each person a similar question. Do they personally know anyone who's experienced rape or sexual assault? One after another, each person says yes. Kamau gives the last line to the sex therapist Sonali Rashatwar, who goes by the pronouns they and them. Here's how they answer. The question is often like, have you ever experienced rape? But uh, is the question ever asked like, hey, have you ever raped somebody? And I wanted to ask why you wanted to end with that statement. I mean, I think I wanted to be, I was always trying to be clear throughout the series that this is bigger than Bill Cosby. That Bill Cosby is a way into a lot of conversations about America. Uh, you know, the, uh, the way that, uh, that uh, Kieran Mayo puts it, like he's sort of a catalyst to understanding America because America has a racism problem. America has a problem with the way it treats women, misogyny, rape culture. You know, I don't know what the one word for that is, but it's got these two problems that, it, that, have, that have been consistent throughout the history of this country. And so Bill Cosby's career addresses both those things in some way, his life and career. But I also want to be clear that it's bigger than Bill Cosby. Like, I think I see a lot of people saying it's a takedown piece of Bill Cosby. And it's like, well, you haven't watched it and you probably never will watch it. But I want the viewer to be aware that, like, this is bigger than Bill Cosby. So that line in particular, there's lines that when you're interviewing people where you go, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> like, you just have this, like, where, where electricity goes through you. And then the interview's over. And then everybody who was in the room goes, did you, did you remember that part? And that was one of those lines that, like, electricity went through the room. And that was, and I think we also sort of remember it because it was the day that Bill Cosby got out of prison and we didn't know at the time. They have a lot of lines in the series where electricity goes through you. And that line was when it just felt like you can't, 
argue with that. <laughs> like it just, I just love the fact that it is an it, it is an inarguable point that that uh, nobody asked that question, and I thought that was a powerful way to end it. I want to thank W. Kamau Bell for speaking with me. His new series, We Need to Talk About Cosby, is now streaming on Showtime. You'll find links to his other projects at wkamaubell.com. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.